Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, your outdoor living hour, your Saturday morning tradition for 34 years, and third Saturday, excuse me, fourth Saturday of the month now, and uh, I'm, the way our family and our uh, festivities work, I'm, I'm just now halfway through uh, our Thanksgiving celebration. So Farmer Greg is joining us in studio, and he's going to help us get out in the garden because tell you what, I, I need to move around some. <laughs> yeah, work off some of that uh, turkey slowness, huh? Oh, man, it's been a great uh, great time. Lots of family, lots of friends, lots of, lots of new memories created. I hope you all had a great uh, first Thanksgiving in your new digs. Oh, yeah, 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 we did. It was nice and quiet, which is good. And we're going to see some friends this afternoon. And you even live in a place now that I would think maybe here and there you'd actually hear a real turkey gobble. Uh, not here and there, dude. No, nothing. <laughs> I have seen I have seen dozens of turkeys running wild in my uh, <laughs> in, in the forests around me. And in fact, um, just recently I saw like 30 of them. <laughs> it was amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Excellent. The wildlife here is, including bears. I was on a walk the other day. I uh, didn't see the bear, but it was right after a rain, and there were bear paw prints in the mud. <laughs> was it a cub, right? uh, size of a cub, maybe, or a mama bear? No, this was definitely big. Okay. <laughs> Stay away. It wasn't sticking around to find out. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> But Farmer Greg is joining us uh, via Zoom, and he's talking today about winter gardening in the desert. And I've got a great line-out list, and I've got something to interject here along the way as well. Great. Are we going to start there or start with me? I'm going to let you start. All right. The, the cool thing about growing in the desert is that we literally can grow all year round. You know, when, when I moved here to Asheville, and started paying attention to the seasons here, it's, you know, it pretty much closes down in the winter. You know, uh, December, January, February, they can't grow a whole lot. The cool thing about growing in the desert is, is you can grow in December, January, and February. And really the hard time to grow is in July and August. In fact, one of the last few years at the urban farm, I didn't grow anything in <laughs> July, August, and September. First of all, it's just too dang hot for me uh, and uh, just too dang hot for the plants. And I've always said that there's four specific growing seasons in the low desert, uh, September. And it used to be August, September, uh, but the past few years, the August has been way too hot. And August and September and October is great for hardy greens. The brassicas, brassicas are broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. If you get seeds of those in the ground in September, they'll get germinated and start growing. And by the time it cools off, you'll start getting, you know, you'll start getting food you can actually harvest. Uh, so that would be the first planting season. The second and, planting and season. And say that again, bro broccoli, uh, broccoli salad. <laughs> what was your word for that? Brassicas. Brassicas. Okay. Brassicas are uh, cauliflower, cabbage, broccoli, 
um, those kind they're, they're the hardy greens, uh, the ones that, um, kales as well, that they can take the heat and they can take the cold. So that's the first time to plant. Uh, the second time to plant is in November-ish, right about now. And you can start planting out lettuce, the delicate greens, snow peas, all kinds of things. And in fact, if you go to plantingcalendar.org and download my planting calendar, it's free. That'll tell you specifically what to plant in what season. Season number three is in February. And this is like right after the last frost. Usually we get, if we're getting frosts, it's around mid-February. And that's a great time to uh, get eggplants and peppers in the ground, uh, tomatoes in the ground, as long as it's not going to freeze. That's, that's uh, your salsa season. That's the salsa season, exactly. And then the next time to plant is uh, mid to end of March, beginning of April, and that's all of your vining crops, your pumpkins and watermelons and cucumbers and zucchini squash and that kind of stuff. So there's there's all all the way through the seasons, there's stuff we can actually grow. And Which the, is really cool. A lot of the vines, if you get the right microclimate setting, that is one thing that will make it through those extreme yes. summer months. Yes, exactly. Well, and the other thing that I found uh, quite a few years ago is if we're shading the ground by growing some kind of crop over the top, uh, that keeps the ground temperature significantly less. And that could be watermelons. That could be squash. That could be sweet potatoes. That's one of the things that grew wild at the urban farm was sweet potatoes. And they just grow and they cover the ground. And it literally can drop the temperature at ground level 50 degrees. Yes, I said it, 55, zero degrees in the middle of the day, which is the, that's the difference between stuff actually growing and not. So that ground cover is a great, you know, you, you couldn't grow anything else underneath it. Like if you had a, a great sweet pea vine, it's not like you could have smaller stuff underneath it, but the plant itself shades itself and helps it grow. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes, and I'm going to say it depends because some of these things we can grow up on a trellis. If you're growing beans, you could grow beans up on a trellis and um, – squash and watermelons on the ground so you can you know go multiply multiple levels if you like and so you've got the four seasons yep you've got your planting calendar so you know what to plant in each one of those we went through it briefly here uh, but your planting calendar has a lot more specific exactly uh varieties than than what we've mentioned here and then, there's a really really important thing Make sure you know that what you're buying will grow right now, whatever season you're in. Um, I, I did a segment for uh, one of the local news channels maybe five years ago in Phoenix, and they asked me to go into one of the big box stores and check to see how many of the plants would actually produce food that they were selling for food. Um, and a over 50% of them would not produce in the season that they had them growing. So you cannot count on um, the big box stores and some local nurseries. You have to be conscious of what 
is in season for you to be planting. Like right now, you wouldn't want to plant squash in Arizona. Wrong season. Brassicas, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, that kind of stuff, it's perfect season. Let's fast forward to March. If you plant a brassica or broccoli in March, it's immediately going to bolt or go to seed. So our planting calendar is great. Get a planting calendar for your area and make sure that you know that that plant, if it's a plant start that you're buying, is in the right season. And then your next point is so critical because it's one of the easiest ones to violate. Start small. <laughs> yeah, I uh, for decades I've been telling, because I've been teaching permaculture for 30 years. Permaculture I like to call the art and science of working with nature. And one of the things that I've said for at least a decade is spend at least a year on your property before you make any major changes. Because that's how you're going to learn what's going to work and what's going to what's not going to work. And so I'm I'm sitting here in four acres in Asheville and it's like, all right, hold on, time out. I got to pay attention. Oh, you're observing. Yes. You sit there and wait a year just because you're waiting. It's not going to do anything. You got to observe while you're waiting. Yes, thank you. Exactly. Pay attention to what's going on around you. That's uh, that's really important. And small small mistakes make small boo-boos. <laughs> big mistakes make big boo-boos. Um, in my podcast, one of the things that I do is I ask uh, my guests, tell me about a time you failed and what you learned from it. And that came from an experience that I had in 2003 and 2004 in Phoenix. And a buddy of mine and I, we started a nursery where we were growing organic plant starts. And what we did was we started 80,000 plant starts in the fall of 2003. 80,000. 80,000. In retrospect, it should have been 8,000. And uh, when we got to uh, February, every weekend in February was rainy, so the nurseries weren't buying the stuff. So I we get to the end of... March and April when we, and we haven't sold nearly what we need to sell. And I have really expensive compost, <laughs> really expensive compost. Exactly. Actually, what I did is I put out an email to our email list and I said, come and get this stuff for free. <laughs> so somebody so, benefited yes. from it. Live and learn. Start small, start small, pay attention. And there's a lot of great ways to smart start small that you have mentioned here that you know, you don't need to necessarily start in your backyard and garden. There's, if you've got patios, windowsills, uh, vertical containers, there's a lot of great ways to start small. Yeah. Well, and the, 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 one of the things I've said for years is that the easiest thing to grow and the most expensive thing to buy are herbs. And you can grow basil on a sunny windowsill. So start there. And, um, Pots on a patio. One of the things that Heidi did at the urban farm and what we do here is we just have, you know, medium-sized pots and we're growing flowers in the pots, but we're also growing vegetables. 
We have Farmer Greg joining us in uh, via Zoom here on this post-Thanksgiving broadcast. We can do a lot, but we can't stop the clock. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Farmer Greg, we've been talking through the seasons of planting, making sure you're planting the right thing in the right season. Uh, and then we were going through some options on starting small. You mentioned windowsills, pots on the patio, but uh, tower gardens, uh, I've seen a few of those, and they seem to be, the, the people that use them seem to be very successful with those. Uh, and also, if you've got the space indoors, hydroponics. Well, and a tower garden is kind of hydroponic-like. They actually call it aeroponics, but it's using water, dousing the roots with water every 15 minutes or so to keep them hydrated with, and the water has nutrients in it. So uh, hydroponics and uh, tower garden, it's kind of the same technology. And I actually found my tower garden in 2010 when they first came out. And I, so I bought it back then. They're a little pricey up front, uh, but once they're paid for, you know, your nutrients are $50 a year probably. And, uh, you know, they just work really great. And we actually had a light kit for ours uh, because we were actually growing greens inside in the summertime. So lettuce greens, arugula, Which spinach. Which is usually with your, the tower garden. Your, you know, that, and Yuma, you know, that's December, January, when all that is coming out of harvest. So you're exactly you're replicating that in Phoenix in the summer with yep. a tower garden and the right lighting kit. Yep, inside. So that way we got our salad greens all summer. And that, so tower gardens are great. Uh, there's this thing called aquaponics. Aquaponics is where you set up a fish pond and use the fish waste to water the garden plants and i wouldn't do that inside though no. <laughs> oh man actually, i'm sure some people do <laughs> actually when i did move into the urban farm 25 30 years ago i had an aquaponic system inside <laughs> and had being the key word we, we yeah. <laughs> yeah it didn't last very long but i did try <laughs> and we have a great podcast uh, with farmer greg on aquaponics from several years ago you can go mm -hmm. to today's archive page and get the link to that podcast because that that, that was just a, a phenomenal hour. And your guest that you had joining us in studio literally wrote the book on it. There's also raised garden beds and ground level garden beds. I am not a huge fan from a heat perspective of raised beds in the desert uh, because all of a sudden we're raising the bed and getting heat on five sides rather than if it's a it's an at ground level bed, then it's only got heat on one side. However, from a, I'm 61 years old, I love raised beds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some, there's a lot of uh, new companies out there. Birdies Beds is one of them that basically buy a garden bed, assemble it, fill it with soil and plant. And it worked and it worked really well. And we'll get to microclimates at some point, but that's raised garden beds, definitely one you don't want on a direct south or west side of your property. That's when you want a little more microclimate and a, something that's in the shade fairly early. And I'm going to say that depends because that garden space, and this is where your solar aspect comes in at, that garden space, a western 
exposure garden space will probably be great for a, a winter garden bed. That's where we have to stand back and observe and pay attention to what's going on in our space because you can literally doom your garden from the get-go by where you place it. Uh, on a northern exposure, northern exposures don't get much to any sun. And that's generally on the north side of a building, a structure, or a wall. And if you're planting your garden there and it's not ever going to get any sun, it makes it a hard place to grow. If you're on a western exposure, western exposures get sun from noon until sundown. And if, you know, if you're planting in a western exposure in the summertime, good luck. It's, you know, likely going to cook. And... Quite a few years ago at uh, the Calico Cow down on, down on Central, uh, we had a western exposed block wall and the garden was on the inside of it. So it was really hot in the summertime. So it was impossible to grow anything there in the summertime. But it never f froze back there. So in the wintertime, we could grow anything and everything. And Susan at the restaurant used to grow tomatoes all winter long, which is hard to do in Phoenix. And that was because of the hot microclimate. And microclimates, you mentioned that word earlier, microclimates are spaces in your yard that are warmer or cooler. And when you're doing your observation to place your garden, to figure out what you want to do with your yard, you're looking for those microclimates to see what you can do with them. You know, you might uh, plant a high chill fruit tree in a cooler microclimate. So microclimates are important to pay attention to. And uh, yeah. And there's a lot of people that will experiment with microclimates, planting things that, uh, you know, like <clears throat> avocados. I know a lot of people that are just determined to try and get an avocado in Phoenix and those microclimates. Now, you may get something to grow in a microclimate. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to produce. Exactly. And with fruit trees, that's a big issue. I, the day they figure out to graft, uh, figure out a grafted avocado that can produce in Arizona, that that tree grower is going to make a, a, a small Clean fortune up. pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the big thing with uh, avocados and them not surviving is the rootstock, which you mentioned. So. All right, we've got uh, halfway through our Farmer Greg's hour, and we'll continue right after, right after bottom of the hour news break. Well, during the break with Farmer Greg, we were laughing that we are through two segments, and we haven't even finished all the talking points for what we outlined for the first segment. So we've got a lot of great content to continue. But I had mentioned I had some a little, something to throw in on you. And I think this is the right time because we've talked about plant preparation uh, thus uh -huh. far. And as we get into planting, I wanted to show you my tally card for my great American seed up. I oh. have over 50 varieties of seeds now uh, at my house ready to be planted. And I've got the planting calendar. And I'd mentioned needing to get out and move a little bit uh, today. Uh -huh. This afternoon, we're going to be planting a lot of these. Uh, I hadn't heard the, the word today before, but uh, bar barricadas, uh, broccoli, salads, what's your... What was your oh, fault? brassicas. Brassicas. Brassicas, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. like so what did you think? We'll be planting our brassicas today. <laughs> Say that again? We'll be planting our brassicas today. 
Nice, nice, nice. What did you think about the Great American Seed Up? It was, uh, I went Friday, uh, my way home from work, so I caught it when it was first opening, uh, still already a lot of people there. Yeah. Um, you know, it. it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when I you have do a... all these, and, you know, I know you guys specifically picked them because they are things that grow well here in the desert. But, you know, when you've got three different varieties of carrots, it's like, all right, which one of these should I narrow in on? Or should I do all three? Or, uh, you know, radishes or, or summer squash and zucchinis. And then I got to the pollinators. I thought, you know, we've got this great area behind the horses that these wildflowers would be great at. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, we talked about starting small. Well, I did not start small with my seed selection for this year. Well, <laughs> the good the good news about that is if you keep them uh, cool, dark, and dry, the seeds will last for years to decades. And that's why I wasn't worried about it. I thought even if I didn't yeah. know what uh, this real grand tomato was and I didn't get it planted this year, I've got a, uh, a spot for my seeds and I'll, I'll get to it maybe next year or the year after or sometime soon. Yeah. Cool. Well, the Great American Seed Up is a, an event that Bill McDormand, Bellstar, and I created about nine years ago. And it's a solution to our local seed shortages. Um, and basically what we do is we rent uh, the 10,000 square foot room at North Phoenix Baptist Church and put, this time I think we had 87 varieties of open pollinated seeds in popcorn buckets. And people just, you know, you go to the popcorn bucket with the uh, Armenian cucumber seeds in it and say, I want to scoop up uh, a scoop of that. And you take a tablespoon of that and put it in a Ziploc bag and put a business card with all the information about the seed in it and mark on your tally sheet and you go check out. And that's that uh, scoop of seeds was a dollar, maybe a dollar and a quarter. Yeah, it so, was. A, I think every now and then there was uh, certain varieties that were up to two dollars, but nothing uh, more than that. Everything was between a dollar and two dollars a scoop. It was a great value for uh, what's and somebody that really knows how to do this and can sow seeds. Oh, we never, t- in theory, need to buy another one of these varieties again. You could exactly. just continue to uh, harvest and propagate and sow and repeat and continue. Yeah. Well, this whole thing came out um, of a conversation that I had with Bill about a decade ago about, you know, what happens if seeds stop coming into Phoenix, we can't have local food. And we didn't have a local seed bank back then. So he and I said, well, what if we figured out how to get 10,000 seed banks in people's freezers? (laughs) So that's how it happened. So awesome. I'm glad you had fun with it. And that's an annual event. We had talked about it, promoted it, um, and we'll be uh, again, coming up next uh, October? November. November. Uh, I, yes, it's either the last weekend of October or the first weekend of November, So, usually we'll, when we do it. so We'll make sure and bring awareness to that when it comes. But uh, we've got our seeds now. Uh, let's hit the watering styles because that one is uh, obviously pretty critical. Yeah. Um, and what, actually, before we go there, let's talk about where to plant your garden because we talked about where not to plant your garden on the north side and the west side. That's the hard time, hard spaces. The best place to plant your garden is an eastern exposure. That means an eastern exposure gets sun from sun up until noon. 
And uh, a southern exposure with some shade is usually a really good place to plant your garden as well. So making, you know, and, and sitting back and paying attention to how much sun and how much shade your garden gets is really, really important. Um, and then watering. Um, automated watering systems is really the best way to go. Uh, so, you know, drip irrigation is okay. The problem with drip irrigation is it takes a lot of maintenance, number one. And number two, um, it doesn't water evenly throughout the entire system. So plants at the beginning of your system are likely going to get more water than the plants at the end of your system. So we actually, about 15 years ago, I stumbled across an amazing watering system. It's called drip tape irrigation. And we have at the urban farm, we have classes that we do online about it. Uh, and the nice thing about drip tape is that the tape uh, fills up and it's, it's these expandable tubes that fill up evenly throughout. And once they're full, then they start leaking so that the plants at the beginning of your system get watered the same as the plants at the end of your system. So that's really important. Paying attention to that um, is, uh, you know, making sure your plants get watered is, and from my perspective, it's always best if you can automate it. <laughs> the other day, Heidi asked me when the last time the pots got watered in our backyard. And for me, it was like, uh, I can't remember. So the last time automated. you did, sweetie. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So automate it if you can. Uh, but I always encourage people to observe where your water comes from on your property. Uh, it's not just tap water. If you are using tap water, you want to take the chlorine out of the tap water, use some kind of chlorine filter. But there's other places you can get water from as well. At the urban farm, I had flood irrigation, which was really nice. Um, then there's the condensation that comes off of your air conditioning unit. You would be surprised in August how much water comes off of that, gallons and gallons every day. And that water you can collect and use it. Uh, there's rainwater, rainwater harvesting. Uh, granted, we don't get lots of water, but when we do get water, we want to make sure that we know where that water is coming from and direct it in our landscape where we want it to use it best. Uh, and then there's something called gray water. Gray water is any water that goes down any drain in your house, except your toilet and your kitchen sink. And it is legal in the state of Arizona to use gray water in your landscape. You just have to figure out how to get it out. That's it. It has to, your home has to be plumbed separately to channel the gray water over here and the black water into the sewer. Right. And it's actually not separately. You can do hybrid systems for gray water. Uh, and the other thing that I did at the urban farm was I moved some of the facilities outside. So I actually had an outdoor shower, an outdoor sink, and a place for an outdoor washer set up at the urban farm when I was there. So I actually moved some of those facilities outside. And a benefit to that as well is a lot of those things that you're using generate heat when you're doing that. So if you're generating that heat outside instead mm -hmm. of inside, 
you know, it's less for the interior of your home to, uh, you know, adjust the temperature to wherever your thermostat control is. So yeah, it's a great, exactly. it's a great tool. Uh, that was one of the things I did when I built is an outdoor shower, uh, staging area and, and kitchen. I mean, it's, it just makes Might sense. Might as well. It absolutely makes sense. And so Arizona DEQ, that's Arizona Department of Environmental Quality, has a document on their website uh, on gray water use in the state of Arizona. Do not let any municipality tell you it's illegal or any contractor tell you it's illegal. It's not. Uh, you just need to follow the uh, guidelines on those uh, from the Arizona DEQ and you're good to go. And we'll put, make sure we'll post a link to that in today's uh, broadcast uh, podcast page at rosieonthehouse.com. So those are the different sources for water, uh, the different types of watering systems. Um, let's get to the what, the soil because, I mean, that's behind yeah. the water, The what, what the seed is growing in. Pretty important that's too. The, yeah. Well, it's, it's actually the most important thing we need to be doing in growing uh, – you know, growing food is growing healthy soil. Healthy soil has five components. If you've listened to me on this show before, every chance I get, I take it to talk about and preach about healthy soil because it is, because it is the most important thing we can be doing. Absolutely flat out. Healthy soil has five components. We have one of those components in our yard, mostly. That's dirt. Dirt is broken down rock. Our desert soil in the desert Southwest has less than 1% organic matter in it. That makes it very dense and the water can't get in. So the five components of healthy soil are dirt, airspace, organic matter, everything that's alive in the soil. Did I say water? You did now, dirt, if you did. Dirt, <laughs> airspace, dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. And the good news is the fix for broken dirt is add organic matter. One of the things that I do when I coach people in their raised beds is I have, say you have a two foot tall raised bed. What I suggest that they do is the first foot in that raised bed, add woody mulch. Go get you some bags of woody mulch, uh, get a, a drop from chip drop if you need a lot of woody mulch and put a foot of woody mulch in the bottom of that garden bed. This is a concept called Hugel culture. And when that, that woody mulch breaks down in the garden bed, it creates mushrooms and mushrooms is soil life. And when I have people ask me this all the time about I've got mushrooms in my yard. How do I kill them? And it's like, no, if you've got mushrooms in your yard, you're doing something right. And we've got probably the most expensive mushrooms in the whole state in our yard because they're growing out by the cattle trough. And they're growing because it seems like about once a week, somebody forgets to turn the water off when they're watering. Oh. And we water three, four, five hours before somebody realizes or see a little pond creating. And but I will tell you, we've got uh, with the manure, uh-huh. and I don't know if it came from the hay seed or bird drop, but we've got a huge area of Bermuda grass and mushrooms growing around where we water mm. our cattle right now. <laughs> 
There you go. All the organic things just out there working together. We've got working together. My neighbor's like, where, how did you grow that? I'm like, you don't want to know. That's probably the most expensive grass in the whole state. <laughs> One final segment with Farmer Greg right after this. Our final segment here with Farmer Greg in our eight o'clock hour of the outdoor living hour. We talk urban farming the fourth Saturday of every month. And we were just talking about the soil conditions. Well, mm-hmm. and if somebody ends up growing mushrooms, they're doing it right. How do you build that soil to a condition it can grow that type of uh, stuff? Stuff. Adding organic matter is really the solution, whether it be lots of woody mulch. If, if you have a dirt backyard, one of the things that I suggest is that you put down a foot of woody mulch. Yes, I said a foot of woody mulch, and you can get it from for free from chipdrop.com. And what happens at the interface between the dirt and the woody mulch is it starts breaking down really quickly. And within six months to a year, you're going to have some really nice soil in your backyard to grow things in. And remember the bottom half of your raised bed, I suggested putting woody mulch in. On top of that, you want to put in a good garden planting mix. And our friends over at Arizona Worm Farm have a great raised bed garden mix that I would add to the top of that raised bed. And so that you can actually plant immediately in your raised bed. And then the woody mulch underneath breaks down over time, builds healthy soil underneath it, brings in the microorganisms and the fungi and all that kind of stuff. And so what you're doing is building healthy soil. And this is a this is a sidestep method from what we call in permaculture lasagna or sheet mulch gardening. And with sheet mulch gardening, what we do is we put down a layer of browns, which could be wood chips uh, or straw, alfalfa hay, and then we put a little bit of manure on top of it, put some ch- a little bit of a layer of chicken manure, and we lasagna it, and you can go 18 to 24 inches tall. And what happens with that lasagna over the course of six months to a year, it breaks down into two or three inches of really nice, healthy soil. That's one of my healthy soil hacks that I uh, teach about. Another one, and people look at me really strange when I talk about this, is let your weeds grow. It's like, what? You want me to let weeds grow? (laughs) Weeds are, now I'm not talking about Bermuda grass here. I'm talking about mallow and cheeseweed and um, the taller ones. They are pioneer species. They show up first and they do the heavy digging. Mallow will get four or five feet tall and that it'll have a root in the ground that'll go down 16 to 60 inches. And so what I've done in the past is I let that weed arrive and then I grab it and I grab a knife and I cut it off just about an inch below, half inch below the ground. And that's great for the compost bin, the top. And then that root in the ground rots and it adds organic matter and compost right in the soil. So we're actually letting the weeds help us build healthy soil. I'm not a one upper here. But I'm going to mention, if you don't want to get down, you talked about, you know, liking a raised garden bed from a 61-year perspective and not having to bend down a lot. If you don't want a knife to bend down, those sickles are incredible machines. I ordered one three years ago. Our weeds had just become so abundant. I 
I got everything. I mean, I had propane torches. I got sickle. <laughs> I got a, a bush hog from a tractor. I mean, I, I attacked it from all angles. And they will wear you out. I mean, it builds up your shoulders. Oh, yeah. But those oh, yeah. old sickles are, and I mean, one, whoosh, you can get up underneath the trees where you can't get the tractor or you've got other things like the irrigation that you're trying to avoid and just yeah. whoosh, cut it. And I did exactly what you did uh, because you said just let it go. I, I just left it there and let it decompose right on right on yeah. the topsoil. Just like it does in the forest. Just like it does in the forest. And, and this, is, this is what we study in permaculture. How does nature make soil? How does nature make things happen in nature? And then we mimic that. In fact, we have uh, in December and January, we've got an introduction to permaculture that'll be coming up. It'll be on Zoom. It'll be free. Uh, it'll be an hour class, and um, so pay attention for that. And then we are actually giving a 72-hour over five weekends permaculture design course in Phoenix um, in February and March. So if you're interested in learning about permaculture, you can come to one of our free webinars and then sign up for our course if you want. The design class will be a lot of fun because that, you know, once lear learning it and understanding it is one thing designing and implementing it is another and you yep. uh, you know you're you're designing it as you would find in nature and then applying that to you know your home and maybe structures around it the outbuildings the pool the where the patio is it's that's that's really in one of the things i enjoy most about it is, is the design phase yeah exactly and a lot of times you know you can't change the design you know you find out it doesn't work or you figure out you're growing something that nobody eats and you got to change that up a little bit. So you got to change your layout and location. You know, it, there you go. It, 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 it can be a living design. You know, you're, you're right. not, it's not a forever design or it doesn't have to be, I should say. Well, and that's the whole point of permaculture is to look and see what works in the flow and have it be a living design. I'm glad you said that. That's perfect. So, well, it's Farmer Greg. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning. Glad y'all had a good Thanksgiving and enjoyed your afternoon with friends. And we'll look forward to seeing you back here in December uh, as we continue to do our uh, ongoing education and promoting the uh, growing of our own food forest here in Arizona. And uh, thank you. And I will actually be live in studio in January. Uh, our fruit tree education program culminates with people picking up their fruit trees in the second half of January. So I'll be in town doing that. And I'll see you. You guys see my smiling face in your studio. Can't wait for it. Thank you. And enjoy, until then, y'all have a great uh, North Carolina weekend. Thanks.